Well, good morning. Welcome to Willingdon this morning. Uh, there is a momentous event about to happen in my life. Uh, my oldest daughter is about to become a teenager. So, I've been trying to get ready for this for a little while now, and uh, we've been uh, offering some classes uh, here at the church, and uh, so I took some of those, and, uh, and one of our pastoral interns gave me uh, a list of some of the texting shortcuts the young people are using today. And I read this, and I thought, this is another language. I mean, I don't recognize all of these, or many of these, and so I thought this morning I'd start by giving you a test to see how well you knew these texting shortcuts. So I'm going to give you five of them, and you could just sort of, you know, see if you can figure them out. Uh, but I used to be a teacher, uh, and I always tried to give the first question was an easy question, just so you'd feel good and confident and know that you could do it. So I'm just telling you now, if you don't know this first one, this is not going to go well for you. All right? So here's the first one, first texting shortcut, LOL. You know this one, right? Laugh out loud. Ha ha. That was a funny text. Right? That's the first one. Okay, now I'm going to get tougher. Here's the next one. TBH. What does this mean? TBH. To be honest. Uh-huh. Yeah. If someone texts you that, apparently you're supposed to be honest, but you're supposed to be like honest in a good way. Like, do I look nice? Yes, honestly, you look really nice. Okay. So then this one. How about this one? TBR. If the first one was to be honest, this is to be rude. <laughs> if you get this one, you know whatever's coming next isn't great, right? Uh, then this one, this one, uh, TTYL. Yeah, you know this one. Talk to you later. Uh, my daughter, apparently, even though we're in the same room, it's too much work for her to say to you, bye, dad, talk to you later. So she just says, TTL, Dad. I say, yes, yeah, same to you. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then one more. IDK. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, really. It's amazing, all these uh, new, uh, new technology, all this new language. But you know the fact of the matter, it's really good stuff. We just learn it and grow with it. And, uh, you know, as all this technology comes... It brings good benefits into our life if we use it well. But it's not just technology that's changing in our world, is it? All of our culture is going through some fairly significant changes. Uh, and especially uh, in terms of some of the attitudes that our culture has about life, some of the values that they have, the fact of the matter is, is there is a huge shift going on. Uh, throughout uh, much of Western culture throughout the centuries, uh, Western culture has held to what we would call Judeo-Christian values, values based on the scriptures. But now in our day, uh, some of those values are shifting away from that. And in some cases, some of our values are actually, the, of our society, are actually openly opposed to the values that we as followers of Jesus would hold. And in fact, some of these values are being enshrined in the laws of our land. And so that raises for, uh, for us who are followers of Jesus some real challenges, some real questions. And the question is, is how will we live in the midst of a culture that is undergoing these kinds of changes? And when these changes come, how should we respond? And how shouldn't we respond? And these are very real questions for us, aren't they? Both as individuals and as a church. 
Well, the story we're going to look at today gives us some very, uh, very practical wisdom on how to live in light of a changing culture. Stories found in the book of Daniel again. Daniel chapter 6. It is the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And so I want to invite you to turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one somewhere near you in the chairs. And you can find this on page 743. Now, if you've been following with us through this series on the book of Daniel, you know that Daniel and his friends were taken as exiles into the city of Babylon. And over their years there, they faced all kinds of adventures and some crazy experiences. But along the way, they always found that God was incredibly faithful. That he was there every step of the way, that they could trust him no matter what. And now, when we come to this story, Daniel is getting on. He's in his later 70s, maybe even his early 80s. And now, suddenly, everything in his life, in his world, is beginning to shift again. The reason why is because the Babylonians have been defeated, and there is a new government, a new king, King Darius, who is in town, and they have brought a new set of rules for how things should be done. And so that means that there is new challenges for Daniel and how he's going to live in this, new, in this new culture that he finds himself in. And so we're going to look at how he responds. And we want to start by reading the first, uh, first five verses of Daniel chapter 6. This is the word of God. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one. To whom these satraps should give an account so the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So as this story starts out, Daniel finds himself in a, in a culture, in a world where everything is shifting. There is a, a new government. The last government was the Babylonians. Now it's the Medes and the Persians. And he has a new role. In the previous government, he was one of the leading wise men. Now he has a formal position as one of three presidents who oversees the satraps. And there's a new king. It was Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Now it's Darius. And there's a new way that the new king operates. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, these were classic dictators. They made a law. If they didn't like it, they changed the law. Just like that. Darius, on the other hand... He works under more of a constitutional model in the fact that once he makes a law, he cannot change it. So there is all these changes going on in the government and in the culture of the, of the place. But more than that, there is a whole change in the atmosphere of the place. Suddenly, where Daniel works, there is jealousy among his co-workers. There's jockeying for power and for position. And no doubt there was corruption. There were those who were cutting corners and taking advantage of the king. And there would have been a great deal of office politics there. And in the middle of it all was Daniel. So how does Daniel live in this kind of an atmosphere? How does he conduct himself in the middle of a workplace or in the middle of a culture where the, where the values are not in line with the values that he holds? 
and where everyone is looking out for themselves at the expense of everyone else? Well, the answer is, we see it here in these opening verses, that he lives with incredible integrity. And verse 3 tells us that Daniel distinguished himself among all the others because he did not operate like the others. There were others among those leaders who were corrupt and others who were simply lazy. And you know, Daniel could have been both of those if he wanted to. I mean, he, he could have skimmed money from the taxes that came in because he was at the top of the organization. Just the king was above him and he could have easily hidden from the king any money that he stole. He could have done that. And he could have been real lazy. I mean, he was a man in his 80s. He'd served for years. And he could have come in late and taken long lunches, hung out by the water cooler all day, called in sick when he wasn't sick. He could have done all those things. But he didn't. Instead, he worked hard. And that's why there's no doubt that these men, when they came looking for some, something to, to complain about for him, they found Nothing. In verse 4, the NIV describes his character this way. He was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. In other words, Daniel was utterly honest and completely dependable. He knew the the words of the prophet Jeremiah, who had written to the exiles in Babylon and said to them, when you're in Babylon, you seek the welfare of that city. And that's what he did. In fact, he worked hard to seek the welfare of that city. Whatever he did, he did to his best ability. And that's why, also in verse 3, it says that in Daniel was an excellent spirit. He did things with excellence. And this is the first lesson that we need to learn from this passage. You know, we who live in a culture with different values than ours, where people are always competing and maybe not doing things well, We who are followers of Jesus should always live and work and serve with a spirit of excellence. We should be utterly honest in everything that we do. In our workplaces, in our business dealings, in our tax returns, in what we declare when we come across the border, in whatever it is. Even when no one else around us is doing it, we must be honest. Because that's who our God is. Our God, when he says something, he means it. And you can count on it. But not only do we need to be honest, we need to be hard workers. Because our God was a hard worker. When he created the earth, for six days he worked hard at it. And then on the seventh day he rested. And that's a model for us. We also should be people who work hard and then on the seventh day rest. But not only did God work hard, he Worked with excellence, right? I mean, when he, created, when he created the earth for six days, every day he stopped and he looked and he said, that was good. That was well done. And it was. I mean, look, at, look around you. Look at creation. Look at how he created you and I. God did things well. And we also, when we come to our day, should look and say, I did the best that I could given the gifts that God has given me. This is how Daniel lived. He lived with a spirit of excellence in the midst of this culture he found himself in, and we should do the same. But here's the thing about Daniel. Not only did he live this way, but he was open about the fact that he was a follower of God. It's obvious, because in the end, after they dug through all his history and tried to find something against him, and when they could find nothing, they said, ah, but we know this man. It's obvious that if we're going to get him, 
we can get them on his faith. Same is true for us. If you're going to live for excellence, if you're going to live the way God calls you to live and work the way God calls you to work, then make sure that you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. Otherwise, otherwise you're just a good employee. Otherwise, you're just a great student. And you miss a brilliant opportunity to represent Jesus Christ. And when you do that, when you tell people that you're a follower of Christ, you don't have to, you don't have to be crazy about it. You don't have to wear like a, a, you know, a sandwich board. You know, I'm a Christian. Follow me to church. You know, it doesn't have to be anything like that. But people should know. In your school, in your workplace, in your community, they should say, you know that person who is utterly honest and who works so hard? They're one of those followers of Jesus. Uh, in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, the Soviet ambassador uh, to Canada was in an interview. And the interviewer wanted to know why the communist government of the Soviet Union was persecuting Christians. Now, the ambassador was not about to admit that his government, the communists of the Soviet Union, were persecuting Christians. So instead, he responded this way. He said, oh no, actually, we really appreciate the Christians in our nation. Because the Christians in our nation always come to work on time. They work hard. They never skip. And they're never drunk. And you know that was an issue in, uh, under communism in the former Soviet Union. Because it didn't matter whether you came early on time and worked hard. Or if you came late, came drunk and skipped work. You got paid the same amount. But the fact of the matter is that the Christians lived not for the state, but rather to honor their God in the midst of a culture with very different values. And that testimony was so powerful that even the leaders of that communist nation acknowledged the work ethic and the excellent spirit that the Christians had. Now, of course, they persecuted them not because of their work ethic, but because of their faith. And this is the same for Daniel. Sometimes Christians in our, in our culture feel like they're attacked because they're Christians. But the fact of the matter is, for some, it's not because of their faith. It's because they're just simply mean or lazy or rude. And you know, we who are followers of Jesus should never be mean or lazy or rude. We should always work and live and serve with a spirit of excellence. That's what the Apostle Peter teaches us. In 1 Peter 3, he's writing to Christians who are living in an increasingly hostile environment. And this is what he writes. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Keep a clear conscience. So those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will... To suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now if you endure ridicule or mockery or persecution in your workplace or school or wherever it is. May it only and ever be because of your faith in Jesus. And never because of poor actions. We need to be a people who live with a spirit of excellence. And that's what Daniel does here. He's hardworking and he's faithful. And so these men say the only way that we can get this guy. It's going to be on his faith. And so that's what, uh, that's what they do. Let's look at verses 6 to 9. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed 
that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, should be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So it's very interesting to see how these men operate. In verse 6, it says, These presidents and satraps came by agreement. Now that phrase, by agreement, in the original language has a number of undertones. And the first, it has this idea of conspiracy. These men got together and they came up with a plan. They really developed for themselves an agenda. You see, their agenda wasn't to do what was best for the nation. Their agenda was to do what was best for them. Because you see, they didn't want to change the way that they were living And they didn't want to have Daniel benefit from the way he was living. And so they came together by agreement with an agenda that they wanted to drive forward. That's the first undertone here. But there's also a second undertone. If you're reading in the ESV version, there's a little footnote there. And if you look down at the bottom of the page, the footnote says this phrase could also be translated, they came thronging. In other words, when they decided that they wanted to have this law passed that no one could pray to anyone except for the king for 30 days. They didn't just simply write it out on a nice, neat sheet of paper and give it to one individual to present to the king and say to the king, we think this is a good idea. The king would have looked at that piece of paper and said, pray to me for a month? Yeah, yeah, probably not. No, they didn't do that. Instead, they thronged the king. They came as a large group. And one after another said, oh, king, you, you need to do this. And another one said, king, you're so great. Another one said, this would benefit the people of our region. And another said, whatever it was. And they, leader after leader, with reason after reason, came and bombarded the king. They thronged him in order to accomplish their agenda. And you know, this is so often the case when people have an agenda. They come as a group, one after another, reason after reason, bombarding those in a position of power in order to accomplish what they want to get changed. And they make it sound like everybody is in agreement. Look at verse 7. They're talking to the king. This is what they say. All the presidents of the kingdom. Really? How many presidents are there? Three. And one of them is Daniel. So clearly not all of the presidents of the kingdom. But this is the message that they send when they have an agenda. All of the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors, the celebrities, the sports stars, the mayors, all of these people are in favor of this thing, O king. And so often, the message is communicated loudly over and over and over again that everyone wants to see this change. And since these are powerful and famous people, Nobody wants to be on the wrong side of what everybody wants. And so, there's little opposition to their agenda. And these men, they drive their agenda forward. But they don't just want a proclamation. They want a workplace policy. They want a national law because they want to force everybody to live by it. It happens now, and it happened in Daniel's day. And sometimes when that happens, it causes us to get upset. We say, well, that doesn't seem fair. 
But you have to remember this. Babylon is a pagan kingdom. It's not Israel. The government of King Darius has probably never ever read the law of Moses. And even if they did read the law of Moses, they never said they would abide by it or even acknowledge it. So we shouldn't be particularly surprised nor particularly upset by how easy it was for this agenda to become the law of the land. It happened then. It will happen again in our day. The question for us is this. When that happens, how should we respond? And here again, we want to look back to Daniel, this man who has lived all his life in Babylon and is now old and wise and has been faithful to God all this time. How does he respond? Well, look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So Daniel hears the law. He goes home up to his window. He kneels down and he prays. In other words, Daniel disobeys the law. He knows the law full well, but he also knows the law of God. And the very first of the Ten Commandments is very simple and very clear. This is what it says. You shall have no other gods before me. And Daniel wouldn't dream of putting anyone before his God, not even the most powerful man on the planet. So he simply obeys the law of the land. Now, sometimes Christians struggle with this. They say, well, really? Can we do that? I mean, doesn't the Bible teach us that we need to obey the laws? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Just read Romans chapter 13. There the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear that those who are the leaders of our land were put there by God. And that they have every right to make the laws of the land and they have the right to enforce those laws. And that means that we who are followers of Jesus should faithfully and with excellence follow the laws of the land. We should be above reproach in that regard. Except, except when those laws run contrary to the law of God. When that's the case, then we are not bound by them. And there's an example given for us in the book of Acts. Uh, Peter and the apostles, they have a run-in with the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish leaders in Israel in that day. And those leaders say to them, we forbid you from ever speaking or telling people about Jesus again. And Peter and the apostles, they march right back into the Sanhedrin and their response is simple and unequivocally clear. They simply say this, we must obey God rather than men. And this has always been the position of Christians throughout the ages when the rules of the workplace or the laws of the land contradict the laws of God. And there's much precedent for this. You know, during the civil rights movement in the 1960s in the southern United States, Martin Luther King Jr., who himself was a Baptist minister, called for civil disobedience. He called for disobeying the laws of the land that were not just. And these were laws that discriminated against African Americans based solely on the color of their skin. And as a result of disobeying these laws, he was thrown in prison. And while he was in prison, a number of pastors, a number of white pastors who loved God, wrote an open letter to Martin Luther King Jr. calling on him to obey the laws of the land. 
And so he writes back a very famous letter from his jail cell in Birmingham. And he starts out by saying that normally he wouldn't respond to this kind of criticism because you can imagine he received a fair bit of criticism doing what he did. He said, but because you're, you're followers of Jesus, because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, I feel that I need to explain why it is that I feel it's right for us to break this law. And he writes back and he basically says, uh, he defends the, the, the idea that disobeying uh, certain laws is acceptable because, he says, those laws are simply not morally right. And he draws on the thinking and the, the understanding of one of the great theologians of the church, Thomas Aquinas, and he writes these uh, very simple words. He says, A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law, or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. You see, for Martin Luther King, it didn't matter if everyone in the entire United States, in fact, if everyone in the whole world, thought that it was right to discriminate against African Americans based on the color of their skin. For Martin Luther King, it didn't matter if every state that he went to had passed multiple laws saying not only that it was good, but that it was right to discriminate against people based on the color of their skin. The only question that mattered was this. Is this law in line with the moral law of God? If so, we must obey the law. But if not, then we shouldn't obey it. And that's what Daniel did. I mean, think about this. Next to the king, he was the highest official in the entire land. And yet when the king passed a law that went against the moral law of God, when it contradicted the word of God, he simply disobeyed it. Now, notice what he didn't do. Daniel didn't go out and attack other people if they were obeying the law. He understood. He lived in Babylon. And the vast majority of people didn't follow the law of God. And so if they wanted to obey the new law, that was up to them. Now, here in Canada, we have the privilege of living in a democracy. And uh, so that means that when there's a national discussion about changing the laws, particularly ones that would run against the moral law of God, that we should absolutely participate in that discussion. It's not only a privilege that we have, it's actually a right that we have as citizens of this nation. But when we participate in that conversation, we should engage it with love and with grace and with gentleness, even as we very clearly and very boldly explain our case for why a certain law should or shouldn't change. But in Daniel's case, and frankly, sometimes in our own case, the law has already been passed, and there's nothing that's going to change it anytime soon. And so for Daniel, he simply chose to disobey the law. So he goes home. He goes up to the upper room. He opens the window. He kneels down. He begins to pray. Now, it may look like he's doing that to flaunt the law. Like say, hey, come and see me break the law. It's not what he's doing. This was his regular practice. He simply went and did what he always did. Now, that raises a question. Why, why is he praying towards Jerusalem? I mean, that sort of sounds like, uh, you know, something like the Muslims who pray towards Mecca. What, what's this all about? Well, here again... Uh, as is so much of the case in Daniel's life, he is being obedient to uh, the word of God. 
Uh, if you go back to the day when King Solomon uh, dedicated the temple, he actually called all of Israel to come there. And uh, he offered a great number of sacrifices. And then afterwards, he prayed this very long prayer. And near the end of this prayer, uh, he prayed these words. He's praying for that Israel might be faithful to God. This is what he prays. When they, that's Israel, sin against you, and you become angry with them, and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive in his own land. And if they have a change of heart in their land where they're captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors, and pray to you toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen, that's Jerusalem, And the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea, and cause their conquerors to show them mercy. This is what Daniel's doing. He's just following the instructions in the word of God, praying for mercy as they're in Babylon. You see, uh, Daniel lived the vast majority of his life in Babylon, and he always sought the welfare of Babylon. But... Daniel never forgot that his true home was Jerusalem. He knew the scriptures. He knew that God would never abandon his people. And that one day God would call them back to Jerusalem. And that that was where their real future was. And that kind of understanding gave him perspective as he lived in Babylon. Then when things changed and things got a little crazy, he didn't panic. Because he knew. That God had greater plans. That he was going to bring his people back one day to Jerusalem. And this is the second lesson that we learn from this wise, old, godly man. If we're going to remain faithful to God while living in a culture where, where everything is changing. We need to live with an eternal perspective. You know this beautiful nation we live in. This, this gorgeous city that we live in. In the end, it's not our home. In the end, we're just passing through. Our destination is a city whose whose architect and builder is God. And it's only when we forget that 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 we become panicked about some of the things that are changing around this place. But Daniel never forgot that. And that's why he didn't panic. But it's also why he would not obey a law that simply was not right before God. Because he has an eternal perspective on what God is doing. And he knows that God has already promised that one day he would bring his people back. So Daniel disobeys the law. How's that work out for him? Well, as in any nation, if you disobey the law, you get punishment. So these guys, they know he's going to pray. They go and wait outside his window. And when he prays, they come back and they report it to the king. And it's only then that the king begins to understand the destructive consequences of this law that he passed without really thinking it through. And he tries as hard as he can to try to rescue Daniel. But by now it's too late. And so as evening comes, he reluctantly orders that Daniel be lowered into the lion's den. And, 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 and the king went to the lion's den with Daniel and so did all this other crowd. And when they lowered Daniel into that den, they put a huge rock over it to seal it. And then the king put and sealed it with his signet ring. But these men also sealed it with their signet rings so that nobody could help Daniel. Daniel was now going to face the consequences for breaking the law. And there was no get out of jail free card for him. The last thing 
The last thing that the king said before uh, Daniel was down there in the bottom of the floor is recorded in verse 16. He cries out to Daniel. He says, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. Daniel disobeyed the law and now he's going to pay the consequences. And the only one who can help him now is his God. Daniel's going to have to trust the character of his God. A good God, a righteous God, and a just God. And so that's what he does. And God sends angels to close the mouths of the lions. And then the next morning, the king comes. In verse 19, this is what it says. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me. And then he explains why. Listen to what he says. Because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. You see, God protects Daniel. And in so doing, he shows that Daniel is without blame. And he declares that he is justified in the actions that he took. In other words, God vindicates Daniel for what he did. And this is what God does for his people. Psalm 135, 14 says this. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. See, in the end, God will show that what... What they did in being obedient to him was the right thing to do. In the the case of Daniel, his vindication by God came pretty quickly. It came overnight. But that's not always the case. Uh, Let me give you an example. There's this couple. Their name is uh, Vincent and Margaret Crossett. They set out to be missionaries in China in the the 1930s and 40s. They spent a number of years uh, training for that and then a number of years learning the language. And then they made their way to a small village deep in the heart of China. And there they endured endured opposition and poverty and all kinds of difficulties until finally, after years, they had established a very little church. Really, just just a small Bible study group. But just as that church was beginning to take root, Just as it was beginning to grow, the communists swept into China. And they passed a law expelling all the missionaries from China. And so, of no fault of their own, they were sent out of that country. Really just because of their faith. And they had no contact with that little church. But rather than panicking, they did what Daniel did. They got on their knees and prayed and trusted God. And for 40 years, they prayed for that Uh, for that little church, for that little village, for that region. And and 40 years later, when China opened up, they got on a plane and flew back and made their way to that little village. And when they got there, that little church was no longer there. Instead, it had grown to a church of 4,000 people, a large church. And not only that, over the 40 years, they had planted about a dozen other churches, the smallest of those, which was 1,000 people. And while they had spent 40 years away from where they thought God had meant them to be, because of a law that was not just, because of a law that opposed them just because of their their faith, God himself had been at work. And God had vindicated them for their faithfulness. If you suffer for being faithful to God, he will vindicate you. Sometimes it will be overnight. 
Sometimes it won't be for 40 years. And sometimes it won't be until you stand in his presence. But you can trust that when you live faithfully before God, he will reward you for your faithfulness to him. And this is the third point that we need to learn from this passage. If you want to live faithfully for Jesus in the midst of this culture, it means trusting in the character of God. It means trusting that that he, in his time, in his way, will vindicate you for being faithful to following him. So, how does it all end? Well, in the end, those who accused him were thrown in the lion's den and they they were devoured by the lion's. And God saw that justice was done. And then Darius made a proclamation to all the nations, calling on them to to give honor and reverence to the God of Daniel. And then this story, in fact, all of these stories, ends with this very simple sentence, but it's actually very profound. Verse 28, last verse in this chapter. It says, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, And the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That's an important statement. Two reasons. Number one, it says he prospered in spite of him disobeying the law. God honored him and used him. But secondly, he says not only under the reign of Darius, but also under the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And that's really important because it was under Cyrus the king of Persia that God began to return his people from exile. In fact, The opening verses of the book of Ezra pick up where this verse leaves off. This is what it says. In the first year of the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation. And that proclamation was that anybody, any Jew, anywhere in the empire could return back to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild the temple there. It was The beginning of the end of the exile. Now Daniel would have been too old to go back to Jerusalem. But he would have seen it. He would have known it. In fact the Bible doesn't say. But it might well have been through Daniel himself. And his influence on the king of Persia. That this proclamation came. But regardless of how it came about. The fact of the matter is. Is that God did exactly what he said he would do. He heard the prayers of Daniel and the others as they prayed towards Jerusalem. He fulfilled the prophecy that he made through the prophet Jeremiah. He began to gather again the people that he had scattered because because it was all part of his plan. See, everything that had happened and that would happen and that is yet to happen is all part of God's plan. It's a plan that he laid out before the foundation of the world that you and I and millions upon millions upon millions of others might become sons and daughters of the living God through Jesus Christ. And all that Daniel and the exiles endured in Babylon, their lives, the things they did, the things that happened to them, all of it was ultimately part of God's plan. You know, when we know that, when we understand that, then we can have a deep confidence that no matter what happens... In the end, God's plan will always go forward. In the end, God's will will always be done. In the end, God's name will always receive glory. And this is the final lesson that we need to learn from this. If we're going to remain faithful to God in in trying times, in a culture that's constantly changing, we must always, always, always remember the sovereignty of God. 
We must always remember that our lives are in his hands. But not just our lives. The course of nations are in his hands. Not just the nations, but the leaders of those nations are in his hands. And all of it somehow, in God's perfect wisdom, is working out so that in the end, his plans will be accomplished. And when we remember that, and when we live in light of that, then we can remain faithful to him, no matter what comes our way. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you that by your grace and your goodwill you caused for us to be lived in these times and in this country and in this city. God, we're so grateful. Thank you. But Father, we also know there's a lot of changes happening. Some so good, but others that run against your will, against what you call us to. God, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in our generation, in this country, in this place. Father, to follow you no matter what. No matter the consequences, no matter the opinions of the world around us, no matter the laws. God, above all, may we be faithful, faithful, faithful to serve you. And Father, may you, uh, may you work through us when we do that. May your light shine, Father, not because we're wonderful people, but because you're such a great God. Because you're worthy of all praise and all glory. And so, God, we commit our lives to you again this day. And we uh, proclaim that we want to follow you as we leave this place again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you.